The following is an at-will presentation. Welcome to The Marrow, conversations with creatives about who they are and why they make what they make. I'm your host, Josh Reebok. Today, I am conversing with Rachel Fleet, filmmaker and writer, a New York native, and one of the most unique individuals I have had the privilege of spending time with. I was born on 10th Avenue and 56th Street, and then we lived in Manhattan for about three years, and then we moved to Long Island, which is where I say I grew up, because you cannot grow up in Long Island and... The Long Island will never leave me. Let's just say that. (laughs) It's basically like, uh, it's a cultural experiment. That's what I think. Um, I grew up on the North Shore of Suffolk County in a town called Stony Brook. And when I got into college, I never went back. It just was like, get me the hell out of Long Island. You got on the the raft and off you went into a different city. (laughs) Yeah, but my childhood was spent coming into the city on the weekends. My parents were very much, like, they very much romanticized, like, the Manhattan life and, like, we weren't supposed to live here. There was a lot of that and it was, so I, in turn, romanticized living in the city and they still got their haircuts in the city and so we would go in and we would see my grandparents who lived in Brooklyn and Queens. So it felt like Long Island was just, like, sort of where we, where I was making a stop and it was, like, a weird place. The people were really homogenous. Like, it was beautiful there was really like we lived right near the water so like the beach was a huge part of my life and I played soccer like we had a backyard like there was an ice cream truck that came (laughs) I like went on a school bus to go to school but it was just like I need to get myself back to New York Hmm. and so that was like my little mission and I didn't go to college in New York I went to Ithaca College Mm-hmm. And but I lived in the city starting in the summer of 1999. What what was it about the city that you felt like was calling you back? Like was there a particular trait about Manhattan that you were drawn to? I just liked the diversity. Like I um one of like the sort of main things I think that is sort of integral to my story is that I have alopecia universalis, so I lost all of my hair when I was 18 months old. Mm. So I grew up um, for the first four years, I wore, I was like a little bald kid and like I had like little hats that I wore to keep my head out of the sun, but I was very much like a bald kid. And I would explain to people, oh, I have alopecia, which means I don't grow hair. And then when we were, when I was going to public school, my parents like took me to a school psychologist and. Mm or some sort of like child psychologist and they suggested to get me a wig to help me better adjust to school, which is controversial because I don't think it actually helped. I think it actually Mm. harmed my, it just was hard. Mm. So I got this wig and I was like living on Long Island and I wore the wig to school and it was like not a good vibe. Like, Mm. because no one, I didn't have like a hard time really in terms of kids like making fun of me, Mm. but I had like an internal hard time. Like Mm. it was just like, I didn't want anyone to know that I was different. I thought kids would think that they could catch it just like hairlessness. And I just felt so sad. I would just wish that I had hair. Mm. So the city represented like all different kinds of people seemed to be accepted there. To me, it just was like an internal feeling, like this is where I belong. I don't belong on Long Island. There was cool stores. There was cool restaurants. I liked the pace of things. And it was just like ultimately like the creativity and the diversity and the feeling I think that I had in my gut that like I would be free hmm. there. Hmm. And so I did whatever I needed to do to get back there. So have you always, like, uh, been aware of a certain creative reservoir in you? Yeah, except I, like, shied away from it for so long. Like, when I think about it, it took me 13 years of my professional life to say that I wanted to be a director. Hmm. 
I was always a producer, which was like kind of a lie. Like on some level, I'll always be a producer because it's very easy for me to get to point A to point B. You know, like it's just like I if you're like, we want to have my birthday party in Times Square and we want to have like 15 elephants. Can you do that? Like I would be like, okay, we can figure it out. And I mean, if we couldn't, I'd be like, Josh, we can't have the elephants. You're going to have to rethink it. Like I'm not like a martyr or some sort of weird like warrior, but I would know sort of who to call and how to do it. And that's just my nature. But in terms of my creative life, I was, I mean, my favorite classes growing up was art. You know, I just like, I loved art class and like that, I like just kind of ignored that for so long. And then, um, I started to get involved in the theater when I was in junior high school. And when I got into high school and we were doing theater, like I went to this really great school where there was like, we produced seven plays a year and the students produced them all and directed them and wrote them. And then we would do like a big musical and a drama and a comedy, you know, like we Mm -hmm. did it all. And I really took to that. Like, it was just like this, these were my people. Mm. And also the kids that were doing theater in high school were kind of like the riffraff. So I felt really at home, like in a very homogenous kind of like upbringing where like everyone seemed to have like a blonde ponytail swinging back and forth. And I was like this like bald girl in a wig that was confused and Jewish amongst like lots of wasps and Irish Catholic people. I just was like, oh, this is um, these are my people. And so creativity sort of like was connected to my identity. It just, like, it felt like these, I'm an artist, these are these artist people. I was afraid to say that I was, like, an actual artist, but I just wanted to be associated. And I, and I, Mm. I think a lot of people who are artists, um, sort of don't allow themselves to say they're an artist. Like, it's a common trait. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, it takes a lot of confidence and self-esteem to say, like, I'm an artist and I'm going to pursue this. Like, I have a lot of respect for people who, like have always known like friends and colleagues who like from age like 16 they were like I'm a painter or like from Mm -hmm. age eight were like I'm a musician Mm -hmm. and they just did it and did it and did it it took me like a long time of like sort of running a parallel life to the career that I really wanted (laughs) before I was like wait I have to get off this track and get onto that track because that's really what I want and like I remember when so I you know my wife and I were from Chicago and in the area where I grew up, I mean, it's like the western suburbs. So it's, I, I, you know, I don't know if that's the Long Island of Chicago. I don't know if yeah. that's a, you know, a fair comparison. But I remember having this notion um, that it's I need to be either a businessman or a high school teacher because I'm Caucasian, I'm middle class. And so that those are kind of the two options. And that, that was really disheartening for me as I mean, I can remember being frustrated by that even in junior high. So I would look at my dad going to work or my friend's dad, and I remember thinking, all this sounds horrible. And it wasn't so much in like a, um, like this Peter Pan, I want to be a kid and never grow up way. It was just that none of those things stimulated me even right. in school. So then to think of committing like decades of my life to that was really frustrating. And it wasn't until my wife and I moved to Austin um, which is way more eccentric, way more um, on that kind of bohemian artistic end of the spectrum that I was kind of reacquainted with my own like inner Josh, like the little six-year-old who in order to um, you know deal with the dysfunction in my family and the addictions in my family, I would go into my room and I would write stories and I would tell myself stories out loud. And while I connected to like, narrative and language so much of it was um it was my way of self-preserving and i didn't even remember that about myself because like you i had repressed it for so long or ignored it until i was in my mid-20s and for me to get to the point of realizing really what made me a, a good part of what made me tick and what really made me come alive but getting from that point to being able to verbalize i'm an artist that took another five or six years and part of the reason for me was I was terrified um, of saying it and then having other people not affirm it yeah because for me I was insecure enough and in a lot of ways I still am that I feel like I'm only an artist if other people say it oh, yeah. and it's not enough 
for for just me to say it. Mm-hmm. And so that took me, you know, I mean, that I'm I'm 37 now. I mean, so even from the point of like recognizing maybe this is how I'm wired a little bit, it's taken me 10 years and I'm still not done with that process, right? But so you you've continued on though. I mean, you you moved to New York, you're producing, and then you start moving into this director type role and being an, an artist on film. How did all that kind of come to be? Well, it's really like an interesting turn of events. Like I, when I think about it, I don't think, I didn't take such a linear path on some level and then on another level to me, like looking at my career from a bird's eye view, it's like, oh, well that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, what happened was there was this, you know, I'm 16 years old and I'm like, I want to be a theater producer, you know. Coming into 1501 Broadway, it was like brought back like a little memory because when I was in my first internship in New York, like this is where like the big producers have all their offices and I really was like, I'm going to be a Broadway producer. And I grew up going to the theater, like my family has a pretty like amazing legacy of like Broadway shows. My grandfather uh, helped out one of the box office treasurers for like the Schuberts and Mm -hmm. therefore went to like four shows a week for like 10 or 15 years. (laughs) So the theater's like really big. I wanted to do this. And, you know, I had all of these internships and I worked for these big theater companies. Like I worked for the Roundabout theater company I worked for um the Donmar warehouse in London mm. always as like a marketing intern you know like I was always just sort of like in the marketing department that was like the thing that I did so um yeah so what happened was like I discovered experimental theater like somewhere in college like I read a book by like the Worcester group like breaking the rules and I was like mm. these people are so cool I want to do this kind <laughs> of theater so like the theater is like an ish, like it's a struggling breed no matter what. But like I found the most sort of like avant garde stuff to be into. And the, like there's no money. And I have a joke with a like a former collaborator when I came to New York. He was like, he, we were working on a project together and I had a day job. And I'm like, this is like a hobby. Like if you don't get paid, it's like a hobby. <laughs> and he was like, it's not a hobby. Like, <laughs> I, you know, but I was sort of grappling with, like, I'm a Capricorn, so my, like, brain is in, like, the, I'm ambitious, but I'm also, like, kind of, like, a realist, and, like, I can be a dreamer, but I also, like, am always thinking practically and logically, and I was, like, I want to do creative work, but I need to make money, and I was, like, sorting that out. I was obviously in my early 20s, so making money was just, like, enough to pay for, like, the $700 rent in my, like, East Village apartment that was, like, a one-bedroom converted into a three-bedroom. <laughs> I just had to, like, figure that out. And, like, some food every once in a while. And, like, money for beer and, like, cigarettes. Like, that was just truly what, like, my cost of living was. And, like, a Metro card. Because, like, I couldn't even fathom taking a taxi. Right. And so I I got some day jobs, which were not, like, necessarily, like, super lucrative, but I learned a lot. And I um, – my day job for seven years was I ran all of the fundraising efforts and production for a company called Shishama, which used to be located on 42nd Street between Broadway and 6th in all of these former storefronts. And um, – the Durst organization, so the Durst family owns about 11 skyscrapers in Midtown, and they're really philanthropic arts family, and their do- their eldest daughter, Anita Durst, who's like a sister to me now, mm. she was an experimental theater performer, mm. and she was like doing this site-specific work that I was so into, and one of her major inspirations died of AIDS in 1995 named Reza Abdo, and she was so inspired by his work that she um, started a company to give other artists access to space. Hmm. And the organization's now 21 years old. And what I did with her 
was we expanded beyond her family's properties in Midtown, and we started getting space donations from all different real estate owners all over the five boroughs, and we created a fundraising model so she was like able to sustain the business and continue to offer this service. And there's actually a gala that's happening in uh, on June 8th. I don't know when this will air, but anyway. <laughs> Chashama.org. C-H-A-S-H-A-M-A.org. So that was like my home. That's where I learned how New York City works. Like mm. from a artist's perspective and also from the real estate perspective, the funding perspective. Like I just sort of like had a crash course on like who the players are in the city. Mm. Like who makes the world go round in terms of like the greatest people who create performative work, who create visual art, mm. and then really who owns the land right <laughs> so like not to be like uh, medieval but like there sure. are like the land owners and they <laughs> do have the power yep. so um that was really interesting and then in the midst of that I learned about movies and I produced my first film in upstate New York the summer of 2004 and I totally fell in love Mm. Like it was just so cool. I remember like there's a moment that I think of where we were all staying in this one house and like the production designer and the art department were like working on part of a set for like one of the scenes that we were shooting the next day and like other people were upstairs like having dinner and it was just like all these people coming together to do this thing that required a lot of energy and a lot of focus and at the end of it, we got to hold on to it. Like, it was like a tangible thing. I had been creating performance for so long that, like, if you were out of town, you missed all of the hard work that we put in. But, like, this was so cool because we could, like, we were like, oh, you missed the screening? Well, here's the DVD. Or, like, here's yeah. a link now. That mm. was, like, back in the day of DVDs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I fell in love with movies. I left Shashama. I created a feature-length documentary that we shot in the summer of 2007 in Los Angeles. It was called Giving It Up. It was a story of former Los Angeles gang members who had turned into Hollywood paparazzi. And it was really wild. It was like the summer that Paris Hilton was in jail. And we hmm. like ran, we chased, I mean, I didn't personally, I was the producer, but our director chased like Britney Spears and Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie for that summer. And it was just like, pre-sort of iPhone yeah, and right. it was um, yeah it was just like back when like paparazzi like were like everywhere and mm. I think that recently I've been seeing a lot of paparazzi in New York City which is interesting because I feel like everyone turned into a paparazzi once the iPhone created that yeah, camera really, and nobody had to outsource their paparazzi yeah. anymore <laughs> it can be a part time job for anybody totally <laughs> So I did that, and, like, something shifted in me when I was doing that project. Like, it was so hard to be a producer. Mm. And I'm like, why is this so hard for me? And I just, like, really took a deep look at myself over the next, like, year and a half. And part of the discovery was that, like, the reason why I didn't love being a producer is because I was, like, ignoring this huge part of me that wanted to be a director and a writer. Mm. So I like took that with me and I um, I made a note of it <laughs> and I started to write and I got a I got reunited with a friend from high school and she had gone to fashion school and she wanted to create her own luxury women's wear collection called and she was going to call it Honor and her and her husband were going to do the initial investment and they needed someone to hire to do the startup. And so we joined forces and I was like, you know, I don't know my ass or my elbow when it comes to fashion, <laughs> but I was like, if I could convince these guys to make a movie with me and if I could figure out how to make a movie, I could help this woman figure out how to make a dress in New York City. Mm -hmm. And we did that and mm. it was really interesting like from the beginning and I was writing and I was like thinking about, you know, my own work, but I also was just like, I dove into this project and we developed the brand and we had this brand for six years in one incarnation now it's in its next um and it was like we produced four collections a year and I went from startup consultant to like chief creative officer and I was suddenly doing like these things that I'd weirdly always been doing like mm. 
my job was to create content surrounding all, all the collections and to create the story of the brand. And suddenly I was like producing a runway show, which was very mm. similar to producing a theater piece. Did you love doing that? Yeah, I loved it. Like there's nothing like a runway show, the like intensity of it, the drama, all the work for like 12 minutes. It was amazing. <laughs> and it was really interesting because I really watched myself grow. Like in the beginning, like the first show, like there's all these pictures of me backstage, like clenching my jaw, like holding my fists, like <laughs> so nervous. And then by like the last runway show we did in February of 2015, I just was like, cool. Like I was like sort of like checking like, you know, the Instagram feed for our brand to see like who <laughs> what people were posting. And I was like, oh, it's over. Oh, great. And like clapping. Like I was so calm because mm. I had like really learned for that work, you really have to just do all of the prep and then you just have to let go because it's mm. not in your hands. It's you, are you, are you able to enjoy your work once it's done? Oh my God, totally. I could never enjoy my work and now I just totally enjoy it. Like I, so... What happens, I'll answer that question in an interesting way. Please do. Um, so I'm, like, producing runway shows. Then I'm, like, producing photo shoots. And I'm, like, photo shoots are, like, films, but just one day. <laughs> and then I'm, like, creating, like, events. And I'm doing, like, you know, all of the branding. And, like, the we really um, – Giovanna Randall and I came together. And we, like – she came up with a story. And I helped her facilitate her vision. And we um, – for every collection, like, I would tell the story with, like, the non-clothing materials. So, like, anything that didn't have an honor label on it, like a piece of clothing, was sort of under my umbrella. And we started making these fashion films. And when we were, you know, I guess our fifth year of business, I wrote a film and then someone else directed it. And then the following year, I wrote a film for the collection. And it turned out that I ended up directing it. And that was, like, the coolest thing ever because I was like, oh, like, you're doing the thing that you've always wanted to be doing. And it felt so good and it felt so natural. And I really enjoyed it. Like, I remember just, like, telling myself, like, you have to enjoy this. Like, you, <laughs> it was so scary, but it was also, like, so amazing. And I've really learned to just, like, find a quiet place and just be, like, please enjoy this because this is, like, your life and it's so cool and you get are so lucky that you get to do this and like do not take it for granted isn't that an odd thing that i mean i part, part of the reason it's so interesting for me to hear about that is like i struggle with that you know so much is you labor over something whether it's a long-term project or a short-term project and i labor over it and then it's almost like as soon as it's done rather than savoring it or rather than uh giving myself permission to kind of find even just a relief from the work in that and yeah. smile and laugh. I just either berate my work or I jump into the next thing. And then and then it's typically when I've done that for too long that I start to go, why am I doing this? Yeah. Like why am I, because if I don't pause in that moment when it's so sweet, it's like, well, then I'm just pointing myself toward the next moment that I'm going to skip over. Yeah. And so totally. it's like it really, like I, I find that for me sometimes – I lose perspective on even why I do it because I skip over the moments that in theory I do it for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I have to, I mean, I have to like literally pray to enjoy something. Like, please help me enjoy this. Like to whatever, you know, you believe in. I, I just am like, I need to enjoy this. Like, please help me enjoy this. Like, please yeah. take away the fear. Because the fear is something. Like, if I'm not a enjoying something, it's because I'm afraid. And I'm letting mm. the fear take over. What, and if, what's what's the sort, like, typically what's, like, your core fear? Is it that you feel like a failure? Is it the rejection of an audience? What's what's that primary fear? Um, That's such a good question. The core fear is that I will fail and that I will, like, not be loved. Like, at the mm -hmm. end of the day, like, that's just, like, the core yeah. at that. And so, and yeah. so like, whatever is going on, it can all go back to that. It's, like, mm. which I think is human condition, mm. you know, but it's, like, the way I respond to my human condition mm. is, you know, my spiritual sort of fitness if you yeah, will sure. so if I'm like oh you're just like afraid that like things are gonna not go your way like 
you, there you're not in charge of like yeah. the way things like I can only like basically like show up to a set and like sort of take actions the way it sort of unfolds is really not up to me right like I believe that yeah well and I and I've Sometimes I wonder if I chose to be a writer because I thought it was the art in which I would have the most control. <laughs> like maybe, maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. But even that, it's such a like, I don't know. I mean, even that inspiration, it's like inspiration is not my slave. You know, I feel like a lot of times it's the reverse where I, I am there to hopefully get something out. But if I could snap my fingers and tell my inspiration when to show up and in what quantity, this would be so much simpler than it is. And, and that's so much of like where my fear comes from. It's, it's the acknowledgement that I'm not in control. Yeah. And the fear of what, what that lack of control is going to lead to. I mean, I, it's, I, I think it's so good what you said because for me it's, it's not the fear of failure. It's what failure will do to me and that it's mm-hmm. that it will leave me alone. Yeah. And that um, now I'm going to be – isolated from people who maybe only wanted to be near me as long as I was creating something that was worth their while. Right. And it's like that core belief that somehow like everything is conditional or like love is conditional and that like, you know, it's like it gets like I've thought about this a lot. It's and I think it really does come down to that core fear of like basically like dying alone, you know, like not to get Mm -hmm. super dark, but it's like we get dark here. Yeah, we get really dark here. (laughs) I mean, it's not about, oh, like someone's going to be mad at me. It's, that's like, okay, like I was in psychoanalysis for six and a half years. A cigar is never just a cigar right. in my mind. You know, yep. there's always some mm-hmm. uh, deeper layer. And my yep. brain has been through that process. And so I can't possibly look at a situation and not think about the deeper meaning. Yep. I can't possibly. It's like it's like that moment when I was a kid, I um, – I remember learning how to read and like being in the car and driving with my parents and seeing like words and knowing that like I could no longer ever look at a building and not read it. Mm. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) It was like crazy. Mm. I was like, I can read everything. Mm -hmm. I read everything. I can't Mm. look at it. It was no longer just like shapes on a building. It was like suddenly these are words and. I can't look at a situation and not think about what mm. is the subtext or what yep. is the deeper meaning here. And I think mm. that that actually is cool. And I think, I I mean, I'm happy to be just going to like what I call normal person therapy, which mm-hmm. is once a week. But I was in psychoanalysis for four years, uh, for four times a week for six and a half years. Mm. And I really dove deep into like what was going on in my brain and like mm. really dealt with a lot of stuff. Mm. And I like that. Like, I like now when I, like, have a conversation with someone and someone says something and, like, my response, I'm like, why am I so either, like, into that thing that that person is saying or Mm -hmm. why am I not so into that thing that the person's (laughs) saying and, like, why is this person saying this to me right now? You know, like, and you could... You could say, like, oh, like, that sounds like a clusterfuck and you (laughs) need to, like, stop thinking so much about yourself. But it's also really interesting. You know, it provides, like, another layer of, like, texture to my life. I am of the persuasion that all of life is just one big Rorschach. (laughs) And we just, you know, you see a dog and maybe you see fear because you were bitten when you were a kid or whatever, and I see a child that I want to sweep up into my arms and have lick my face and feel affection. Yeah. And there's such, but for me, it's like my or your, anyone's observation on life or the way we interact with life in a lot of ways says so much more about us than what we're interacting with. Right. And it's so, to me, indicative of, I don't know, the wonderful subjectivity to life. And for me, I love exploring that. And, and I, you know, I live so much of my life, it sounds like you do too, inside, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the 10 different stories inside my skull that I love going into and getting lost in and then tumbling into some cellar door that hasn't maybe ever been opened or opened in so long. And then, like, trying to find my way out with some little kernel that I found and then wanting to make something out of that. So I have a question for you. So I was asked, yeah. I've, I've been asked this question before. And people, people pose this to me on a fairly regular basis. They say, is it possible to go too deep 
inside yourself? Is it possible to go too deep? What do you think of that, Rachel? I think you can go too deep. Like, I think that there's a place where it's, like, extreme self-absorption, right? Where, like, at the end of the day, like, it is not actually about self-knowledge. It's about, like, helping others. That's Mm. my real belief. Like, Mm. and so I can, like, I can just know myself really well. (laughs) I can, like, get all down in there. But if I'm just like a blob in the world that knows a shit ton about myself, <laughs> then I'm a waste of space. Right. Like that's my personal belief. Sure. Like I love going down deep in there. I'm like, okay, cool. Like why is this this way and why is this that way? But like at the end of the day, it's like we're here on the earth with other people. <laughs> yeah, so like right. why am I so deep down into like my brain, into like yeah. the cortex or whatever the f- it is? I don't know. But um, I, <laughs> biology was not my strong suit. <laughs> but like we're here to relate with other people. Yeah. And like, you know, I was – it's funny. I've just been really – it's not funny. It's great. I've been really aware of – helping others lately like a really dear friend of mine passed away Mm. and he was such an example of um like helping others like he just helped so many people and like this really good friend of his like lost his sight and like my memory of him recently is that he was like always helping this friend get around like when we were you know at social functions and it just was like really cool like he was an older man but he and he lived a really full life but he still was too young to die and I just Mm. like I've been thinking about acts of service like how can I help Mm. and that really is the most fulfilling thing like I was like coming here and there are these people and they were like clearly tourists and like (laughs) when I am in a rush those people drive me nuts they're like wearing pastels they have like sensible shoes for walking you know like they're like definitely not from around here right right? and it's like Times Square New York City and I'm in the subway and I'm like I gotta get to the the, uh, to the podcast I I'm like five minutes behind and I see these people and they're like looking at the map and they're just like so confused and I just stopped and I turned to them and I was like do you guys need help and they looked at me sort of like, wow, who's this like wild woman in the turban with the sunglasses and like the red lipstick? Right. And I just was like, where do you need to go? And they were like, Madison Square Garden. And then the other one was like, Madison Square Park. I'm like, totally different. <laughs> and I directed them and like I was like a little bit behind to getting here, but it like felt good. Like they they were not um, expecting someone to help them. And it was, like, a really, like, cool moment. And I think one of the women was even, like, a little bit suspicious of my directions. And I was like, trust me. I know where you have to go. Just the person without the sensible shoes. Yeah. I'm wearing, like, I mean, my shoes are kind of sensible, but they're not. I'm not wearing any pastel fleece. And so I, like, I'm from around here. But they definitely had, like accents that were yeah. from the like lower part of the country and I made a lot of assumptions right I was like oh my god like we don't share the same political views yeah. but like <laughs> I have this feeling like we're all like kind of like here on earth together like I think I'm here to help like I'm not here like I think a healthy dose of like diving deep into one's own psyche is great but at a certain point, you have to be like, okay, time's up. I have to go and like be a like dues-paying member of society. I, I have this. I can become really weird and really like vampiric. <laughs> you know, I one like one of the funniest differences that remains in my wonderful marriage to my wonderful wife is every day she wants the blinds up, which seems like a normal <laughs> human behavior to be reminded that we're not just living in some subterranean environment, that there is a sun and a sky and other people. And the moment she leaves the apartment, I put them right back, I put them right back down. And, and while it seems like just this kind of, um, I don't know, surfacey little quirk, yeah. I, know, I know it's sometimes representative of the way I live my life where I block out, I want to block out everything. And there's this weird thing because like, I, I feel like on the one hand as artists, we kind of exalt that behavior. 
it gets like falsely deified as like, mm. oh, they're doing the work and they're going deep. And, and I think there's a truth to that. But where I get mixed up is forgetting on why. Yeah. And the whole point of going in for me is not, not just to learn about me, but it's to learn about something in the hope that by bringing that out, it can bring a moment of good into the life of other pers- uh, of another person, even if it's just one person. Right. But for me, I get trapped in thinking that the part of going in is the end goal. Yeah. And so then I kind of hermit my way and golem my way through like a year of life and come out and, you know, I've, I've trampled the people that I love in the process and they're, they're justifiably um, wounded. But one thing, one thing I want to ask you about, because this is, this is interesting about you, as you talk about the things you've loved doing creatively in all these different ways, and we haven't even talked about all of them, but it seems like you love the collaboration part. Mm. That you, um, that there's something for you. There's a certain electricity created when you get to work alongside other people. Is that true? Yeah, that's totally true. And that's why writing is so dreadfully painful for me because I'm just like, ugh, I'm alone and I hate this. <laughs> and I have a screenplay that I've been like sitting on for years. It's a very important story that I have to tell, and it's very much autobiographical. Mm. But I hate doing it, and I know. I just have to like keep telling myself like this time alone with the computer in the room in the chair in the bed <laughs> wherever it will be is like it's finite you know like yeah. it will end this too shall pass and you'll be like on set with like a million people like doing this thing and seeing <laughs> this come to life just get there you know yeah. like I really do I love the people like that's mm. I think if you asked people about me they would say that I I'm pretty extroverted and I, mm. I I know a lot of people and I have a lot of really great relationships. Mm-hmm. But I also, like what, going back to what you were saying, like I think my default is sort of like to be like a golem in the dark cave and mm-hmm. my actions are just like contrary actions because I don't do well when I'm down there. So mm. I have to sort of like force myself to put the blinds up. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like an action that I have to take. Yeah. Now yeah. see, now I I I love it, all this. It's so interesting to me. So you you don't know what what life is like without Appalachia? No, it's alopecia. Alopecia. <laughs> Appalachia. I was like, I think that's like a fruit. Yeah, <laughs> like no, over in like the sub-Saharan desert. Yeah. Like, so it's alopecia. Alopecia. Okay. So you you are so you you love people though, and and like. It didn't like I think about some of the things I've dealt with in my life, and oftentimes my response has been to like recoil and run from people, but that that hasn't happened at all with you. No, I mean, like, I think I had a, a lot of fear of people when I was a kid, I was always like slightly afraid, but I, I've like you know gone down deep and like looked at myself, and I've like my fear of people is like not really with me anymore, mm. and. I like to have people around. I mean, I always have liked to have people around. Yeah. Hmm. So I think that, like, my fear of them or, like, my, yeah, my fear of people went away when I realized I wasn't going to be, like, rejected for who I was. Yeah. And then Hmm. now, like, I just, like, I like, it sounds so cliche, but, like, I am a people person. Yeah. But I also have been realizing that I need a fair amount of time to myself and, like, truly to myself, like, where, like, there's no one else there Mm -hmm. and not, like, in isolation but in solitude because I feel like, especially for the work that I am doing and the work that I want to be doing, um, I need, like, to preserve myself. It's, like, this new thing. I don't know if Mm -hmm. it's, like, being 35, but, like, something shifted where I was, like, you're scheduling your life away, dude. Mm. You need to, like, chill out. <laughs> so what I'm doing now, so we had this um, fashion brand, Giovanna Randall and I, for six years. And then this past summer, like, she sort of transitioned into doing more of, like, a private collection and a smaller, like, company where I think she's going to focus on bridal. That's the latest. But... um I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I know I want to continue making films, and I know I want to continue 
uh, collaborating with people and I love telling you know the brand story I think I'm good at it and I was um, you know having a nice summer vacation and the CEO of Killer Content which is the parent company of Killer Films called me up and she had seen a film that I'd done for Honor and we started a conversation the conversation turned into me starting a new division for Killer Content which is called Killer Films Media and we are the branded content division for killer uh, content. So that means we're creating all kinds of content, um, <laughs> video primarily, photographs, still photography, brand experience, live experiential events, mm. podcasts, of course, because everybody's making podcasts. You have to, right? <laughs> but videos are core. We say like yeah. we're making killer films for brands. And um, mm. killer films is most known for... Um, creating like the most engaging and disruptive independent films of mm. our time like since mm. 1995 most recently the movie carol directed mm. by todd haynes and such favorites that include kids and happiness and boys don't cry and mm. my favorite hedvig and the angry inch and still <laughs> alice so it's like the greatest of the greats yeah. and so we're making films like in that vein really interesting narratives for brands because storytelling is king or queen whatever you decide whichever your gender preference yeah and <laughs> content is like the most important asset right now that a brand can have and the way people are buying things um has completely changed and social media is like the thing it's like so it's so weird i i have this thing where like i take the apps off of my phone like during busy times because I it's I find it very distracting <laughs> but then I have to put them back on because mm. I it's my job to mm. be like what are people creating on this mm. platform but then the endless scrolling like makes me so depressed <laughs> so I have to figure out something do, you, do like, you enjoy social media like apart from the fact that it's your job if it wasn't your job do you enjoy engaging that dimension of our existence like sometimes I would say yes it's so fun I can like keep it light and like just you know be out in the world and like take mm -hmm. photos and like throw a filter on it and like add a hashtag and like at somebody tag someone and it's like <laughs> this is fun this is the world we live in yeah. and then some days I'm like oh why are all of these people at this thing what what is that thing Mm. who's that mm -hmm. wait who's that person commenting on so-and-so oh oh no I feel bad <laughs> like it's like suddenly I feel bad and I'm like why do I feel bad who is that <laughs> how does she know him yeah, you right. know like it yep. gets like that and then I'm like you need to put this down yeah Move like on. this is not helping the Rachel Fleet cause. Yeah. This is hurting it, and it's hurting it bad. Yeah. So then I like delete the app. My I have a friend who um, sends me screenshots of funny things on Instagram, like almost re like daily, because she's like, I don't know if you're on, like what your status is. Are you on or are you off? Um, this is like kind of a funny and embarrassing window into like my psyche. Oh, but I can't wait. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> yeah, I'm right now. I'm on. I posted. Um, I posted yesterday. <laughs> I'll post again today. Maybe I'll take a photo of you and we can post it and do a little. And everyone's going to be like, how does she know him? Who's that? What's yeah. with that hair? <laughs> What's up with those tattoos? <laughs> yeah, right. And on and on and on and on we go. <laughs> See, I can't. I can't. Well, I can. I, I self-destruct when really? I engage social media. I like, mm. I can use it to, you know, look at the news, maybe to find out like the newest trailer for a movie I'm excited about. But if I don't have a strategic reason to go in and then that's it, then I just kind of get like devoured. It's like for me, that world has these fangs that I didn't realize when I first started engaging it. And then like, I feel like my psyche and well-being and my self-confidence and even my sense of self gets kind of chewed up in the process yeah. and again that I think that says something about that world but that does say a lot more about me and how I engage it and what I see <laughs> you know with my own interpretive eyes what I see 
when I go to that world. And a lot of times when I go into it, I see the, that guy's really handsome. I don't look like that. This person's um, super successful or they're doing these things and maybe I should be doing these things. And then I just kind of like start, I, I, I don't know, it sets this kind of metamorphosis in process that takes a certain time away for me to detox from and be reminded of like at least something close to who I am and who I want to be in the world and how do I be that. So I, I struggle with it quite a bit. Yeah. I was just like, as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, there's there's this one sort of anecdote. My I was hiking over Thanksgiving with some friends where I grew up on Long Island. Like, my parents still live there. We were, like, hiking around, and, like, we ran into this guy who I haven't seen since high school, and he was like, your life looks so good from social media. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so funny. Like, and I just thought about that concept and it was like he just told me that my life looks he he's like i think you're doing well s- as far as i can tell from social media and it's like mm-hmm. if he only knew that i was like devastatingly heartbroken like i was like so sad i was like had never had mm-hmm. less money in my pocket you know like mm-hmm. it was just like such mm-hmm. a hard time mm-hmm. but it was like oh but on social media you look like you're doing great and so it's yeah. really interesting it's like i have to remind myself like it's not the truth mm-hmm. And, like, when we're sitting across from each other, like, in real life, that's the truth. Yeah. Um, As long as we're being honest with each other. Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, so I I took a step back after that. I remember I was like, I'm not going. And then my my friends and I have this joke about doing, like, a real, like, real talk Instagram where you're like, today I woke up and I, like, couldn't get out of bed for, like, you know, 30 minutes. I'm so depressed. (laughs) And, like, this is really what's going on. No filter. Versus, like, me, like, an hour later, like, in, like, my sports bra, like, taking a selfie. I would never do that. In the locker room of, like, Physique 57, like, like, Transform Tuesday, hashtag bar life, you know, when really I'm like, I don't know what's next. (laughs) Like, when am I going to be okay? You know, Mm. it's not the real thing. Mm. And so it's like, if it's like you're like in narrative and you're in fantasy, then it's super fun. But then the other thing like I was thinking about is like, there's a way to do it. It's like where you are keeping it light and you are not engaging so much and just living your life you know Mm -hmm. and the happiest I am is when I'm like not in that world and I'm in reality and I always like sort of think about this thing that my grandmother said she's like nothing good ever happens after midnight and it's like I used to say that about like going out and then now I'm like sort of like nothing good happens on Instagram after Mm. midnight like (laughs) put the phone down yeah right you know like put it down because you will end up like in that darkness Mm. it will be bad you mentioned heartbreak. Um, yeah. Why are you heartbroken, Rachel? Oh, it was a break. A breakup happened. Mm. But it's okay. And it's actually better. It's better now. I'm, it's better now. Yeah, I'm okay now. You like, meant, things g- don't work out sometimes, you know. Yeah. And it's like, this person is a really great person, and we're not together yeah. anymore. And it's okay. Mm. It's like, that's the best thing that I can sort of say like I believe like my life is unfolding perfectly as it should so like Mm. if this one thing wasn't working out it's because I need to have space for the other thing to work out and then or to the other thing to happen and like the other thing might not happen for a while or it might not work out either like we don't know but what I have really learned is that the most important relationship I have is with myself And I've been, like, kind of dating myself for the past (laughs) six months. And it's really nice. It's, like, I took myself on a couple of vacations. (laughs) I had, like, a very romantic, solitary week in, like, East Hampton over the holidays where I saw some friends and also just, like, didn't. Um, I went to Mexico. I went to St. Martin. Um, I've been, like, doing this thing where I don't schedule away my life. So I'm, like, Mm. you can't hang out on Tuesday nights. You can't hang out on Thursday night. You know, like you have to just like spend time with yourself. And I just feel like I'm really getting to know myself. And like that's not in that sort of like isolation kind of way, but just in like a deep, like um, very important way. Because at the end of the day, like it is just you. Yeah. And I've heard people say before that 
the one question most people cannot answer is what do you want? And that they can kind of identify all these things they are doing and they may be able to say, well, this is the problem. But if someone were to say, yeah, but in your life, what, what do you ultimately want? That most people can't answer that. And I'm amazed at how, how often, uh, you know, my problems could be alleviated, not gone, but alleviated. If I knew what I wanted and who I, more importantly, who I wanted to be, I mean, that would, that would set up a lot of the yeses and nos in my life so much easier. But because I am not well acquainted enough with myself to have an answer to that question, what do I want? Mm. I end up kind of, you know, it's like pin the tail on the donkey in the dark. I'm like, well, I'm going to stick half my life on this thing because I think maybe this is what I want and over here. And while sometimes that's the only way to find out, I think... A lot of times I would probably serve myself and free myself of a lot Mm. of pain and mistakes along the way if I would do the work of trying to understand what I want. Like even even when my wife and I were moving to New York, like, you know, we lived in Charleston and Charleston was so wonderful and it was uh, it was slow and it was quiet and it was um, I don't know. There was there was just dimensions to life there and we really loved it. And so when she got offered this great opportunity in New York really for us what it came down to is what do we want because I feel like we're supposed to want New York I feel like you know if we want to prove ourselves to be ambitious young go-getters we're supposed to do that but is that really what we want because if it's not then we're fools to go Mm. and that that was such a great you know I mean we probably talked about it for six or eight weeks just you know walking around and going no here's kind of as I learn about me here here I think is what I want and then kind of, as we date ourselves, to use your term, then responding to that. But that's been, that's been so helpful for us and then for me, harmful when I don't know the answer to that question. Totally. Do you know what you want, Rachel? I do. I was thinking that as you were talking, I was like, oh, my God, I know what I want. What do you want? It's, like, very simple. It's, like, um, I want to be, like, extremely respected in my field. I want to have, like, deep, meaningful relationships with people which include like a partner and um I want to have kids Mm. and then I want to enjoy my life like I want to really enjoy it like I want to feel like when I die I was like I really didn't take that much for granted Mm. and that means like enjoying like the circumstances having gratitude being healthy and like treating myself well and just like yeah, like when it comes down to it, like just being present for this life in this like sack of skin at this time. Mm. What inspires you? Uh, I'm inspired by cleverness. So people who are clever, um, and that means to me like a sense of humor and like uh, an intellect, but you know, not taking oneself too seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of how I would. <laughs> describe myself um too I'm inspired by like really really beautiful places like uh I love the ocean like I Mm. if I'm near the ocean I'm like the happiest ever (laughs) um I'm inspired by like my friends who a lot of my friends have like stories in which they overcame something really intense and are now like doing amazing things. I think that I identify with that and I you know, I do feel like I'm a survivor in many ways like of like the my the circumstances that unfolded for me as a kid and like you know, I wore a wig for so long, I stopped wearing a wig, I became this like bald person in the world again and that was a huge thing for me. And so those are the the people that have like had to like go through it mm-hmm. are like my people and they inspire me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like you know great movies, uh, great movies directed by women, really good writing. Sunsets. <laughs> <laughs> I have like two friends who make fun of me that I always post pictures of sunsets on Instagram, but then there are the people that get it and like. I like those people. <laughs> um, the sky can do like some really amazing things. I'm mm. really into the sky. Mm. Um, and really, really good food. I love food. And I love like inspiring to me is like, you know, 15 people around the dinner table and some like fabulous spread and mm. 
laughing and music and good times and like those are my most inspirational moments I would say yeah I like the beach too or the water there's something about one thing I love about going to the beach is that it's like a holistic shift from city life in that all of a sudden you're barefoot all of a sudden like you don't feel socks concrete or rubber sole beneath your heel you feel sand it's like you smell the the sea and the brine and like there's a different kind of breeze there's different energy people are running around and you see their legs and their chests and like it's a complete departure from what becomes like everyday life and and I feel like for me it like detaches me enough from my everyday life so that I can be inspired it's like I'm just fully present in the moment and for me that's so like integral to when I get inspired is that I I'm I'm much more likely to be inspired when I'm fully present in whatever it is I'm doing totally. you know like if I'm watching a movie and on my phone any chance of inspiration I've probably I probably strangled it but if I'm you know, sitting across the table from someone or watching a movie or at the beach, and I just am present and open and available to the inspiration in that moment. It's there. I Like, typically, I I can absorb it. Like, when the trailer for Macbeth came out, you know, the most most recent Macbeth, yeah, I probably watch that every day for a few months. I'll, I'll read the same book. Uh, just I'll read it front to back and then go back and read it front to back, and I'll do that for, like, six months. Wow. I just keep doing it because for me, there's something about when I find something that's inspiring, I just want to be like baptized in it over and over and over and over again. And but but that doesn't happen unless I'm like willing to kind of be monogamous with that thing in that Mm. moment and just go, it's just us. The rest of the world doesn't exist. Here I am like and I, I don't know. That's a, I don't know, that stuff means a lot to me. Was, do you ever do that, though? Do you ever, like, just, like, yeah. you go, I'm just going to ride this carousel a few hundred more times? Yeah, I can be a creature of habit, for sure. But I also am not on in so many ways. Like, I I have an oh, – I'm overwhelmed at the options in life. Like, going to the Strand is, like, my greatest dream and also my worst nightmare because, mm-hmm. like, if it was up to me, I could buy all the books and I could read all the books. <laughs> so I get, like, a little bit nervous about, like, the scarcity of time and I'm like, oh, my God, I have to read something else because <laughs> really? there's not enough time. I need to read it all. I need to know. I need to know. But something that I just wanted to say – that like blew my mind recently, which is a very simple thing. Was we were talking about the ocean, like someone pointed out to me recently, like there's a whole other world like beneath the sea, mm-hmm. you know? And oh my God, <laughs> I forgot about that. I was like, holy shit. We think we're just like ruling the world up here <laughs> on the land, but there's a whole world beneath the sea and like I never really thought about it until Mm -hmm. like it was like standing I was in Montauk I was like looking out in the water and I was like what is going on down there and it's so weird to think that like there was yeah I was just thinking that it's like there's the sea and then like there's outer space I mean like which one scares you more I think the sea hmm I think it scares me, but in, like, a really good way. I love the water. I would go, like, any sort of body of water I'm into that's, like, expansive. Like, I'm not a lake girl. I'm, like, the ocean. That's you. Yeah. Space scares me. (laughs) Space. Because it's this untethered, once I float out there, I may never float back. Yeah. But I think the water water scares me in a different way because I feel like, uh, I don't know, I know something lives in there. And I don't know if anything lives in space, like at least something that wants to devour me. Yeah. And in the sea, in the sea kind of way, I uh, I know that something's there. But I I don't know. I the ocean for me is very um, it's sacred though, in the sense that when I'm there, for me it create it helps create perspective in my life. Like all the things you were mentioning before about. I can travel down the many staircases inside of me and become really self-absorbed. And most creatives, most creative people that I meet, most artists that I meet, they're this kind of strange amalgam of narcissism and insecurity. 
And mm-hmm. for me, like being in a place like the ocean, when I just see something that's very big and I see something that is like, you know, teeming with life and I see a place where I relax and I don't really care what people think of me in that environment, it creates a perspective that gives me permission to like engage the world around me yeah. in a new way that I often am blind to Yeah. in the everyday. Totally, totally. So interesting. Rachel, you are amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time Thank to you. come in and talk. That was so fun. Thanks, Josh. Thanks so much for listening to The Marrow. To find me on social media for a list of upcoming live appearances or to purchase one of my books, you can visit joshreebach.com. Please join me again next week. <laughs>